0: All right, God's word comes to us today from the book of Zechariah, chapter 1, verse 18 through 21. This is God's word. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah, to scatter it. This is God's word. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Well, today we're continuing our series in the Book of Zechariah, which is filled with these rather strange apocalyptic visions. It's one of uh, Pastor Hughes' favorite words. Uh, if you didn't know, the Revelation series will be really happening officially today. I think last Sunday he covered some other topic, but today is a real day. You get to learn from the apocalyptic book, Revelation, so uh, please take advantage of that while he, he starts that series. Now, as I mentioned last Sunday, uh, Zechariah was given eight visions all in the same night, and he was called to share these visions with God's people in order to offer them comfort and and hope as they're being called to rebuild their lives after returning from Babylonian exile. Last Sunday, we covered the first vision, which was a vision of horsemen surveying the whole earth and reporting back with the news that the ungodly nations have grown in their arrogance. And so God, he reveals himself to be a God who is, remember, jealous for his people and a God who is angry with the nations and a God whose measuring line is stretched over Jerusalem, which meant that he was committed to rebuilding his people. And by doing so, he was offering them hope and comfort during this broken time. Today, we'll be looking at the second vision of Zechariah saw, and that was the vision of the four horns and the four craftsmen. So what is going on here? Some strange, you know, visual. So what I wanted to do today is basically explain uh, what the four horns and the four craftsmen represent, and then I'm going to share some thoughts on uh, what I think, um, or how, how we, we ought to respond to these visions, okay? Number one, uh, what do the four horns represent? Now, this is not that difficult to figure out because no matter what century, you know, people live in or have lived in, virtually everyone has associated horns with power and strength, right? And not surprisingly, we see the Bible doing the exact same thing. Let me give you... A couple examples. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, it says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and, listen carefully, and exalt the horn of his anointed. That means exalting the power and strength and authority of his anointed, right? So, same meaning strength, power. Psalm 18, they're the same thing. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield. And again, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, it says. And they're the same meaning. It means the strength or the power of my salvation. Uh, to kind of help you, you know, get a better sense of, of what horns are meant to represent, I actually prepared some slides for you, right? And I, as you know, I don't do this that often, so I hope you appreciate this, okay? Here, here we go. All right, movie time. <laughs> I hope you see that a little bit. Uh, I, think, I think we need to kind of dim the lights. If someone can maybe turn the lights off, just for a minute or so, I won't take long. Okay, so some of you, you know, you, you who are critical in spirit, you're thinking, those aren't horns, those are antlers. No, they're horns, okay? Horn, the same thing. I Google horns and this showed up, <laughs> first, first picture, Okay. <laughs> As you can see, uh, just very majestic, you know, the deer looks strong, right, powerful. That, that's the effect of horns. Amazing, right? Amazing creature. Another majestic creature with, like, massive horns on top of his head. I mean, that is crazy. That's strong. Right? That is beautiful as well. You have, oh, my goodness, imagine that coming at you, okay? I mean, um, my young Joshua He's a six-year-old. He's working through these books, like the series titled, like, Who Will Win? I'm sure he's seen that. I think that's titled, Who Will Win? And then there's a book that, there's one book that has a rhino uh, fighting against a hippo. I didn't read the book. But he he not read it. And then he comes to my office a few days ago. I was like, about that, who do you think is going to win, right? And look at it. Oh, rhino's going to win, of course. And he's like, no, you're wrong. The hippo wins because the hippo has tusks. And so what do you think I did? The stubborn father. Right. Who knows? I know better than him, right? I said, no, the, the rhino is going to win, right? For sure. Okay, the rhino is going to win. I mean, look at those horns, right? How can I lose? Um, and you have the ram, of course. Uh, it's a very powerful image. And our culture has embraced, right, the horn as a symbol of strength, as you can see with some of these sports teams. I mean, it's meant to strike fear in your opponent, Right, the picture of the ram smashing into you. Or how about the Texas longhorns, supposed to have the same effect, right? Uh, symbol of strength and power. So that's it. That's all I have. Okay, light's, lights back on. Uh, that, that also give you a sense of, okay, what or how how the horn, what, what kind of message the horn is supposed to send. And in and of, them, in and of them themselves, it it's not meant to be a bad or negative thing, right? But in Zechariah's vision, these horns, they they represent uh, an oppressive, like a negative power. So if you look at verse 18, one more time, it says, I lifted my eyes and saw, behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? Because Zechariah didn't know what to make of these things. And The angel said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So these are negative things. These are oppressive powers. These are opposing forces. Now, should we be concerned at all about the number four here? Because it does say four horns, right? Some scholars, uh, they try to identify four distinct kings or countries that were enemies of God's people during that period. And so you can think of like uh, Assyria, perhaps, or Babylon, maybe Persia. You can add, like, maybe Moab or some other country in there. Uh, but I think it would be best to simply understand the meaning of these, the number four, okay, as a rhetorical tool to mean every direction, right? As in, like, north, south, east, and west, okay? Uh, you know, sometimes the Bible actually uses the expression, the four corners of the world, right, to mean everywhere, okay? And so the, the, the four horns would basically mean the oppressive powers that surround God's people, right, who come from everywhere. Now, the thing about apocalyptic visions is that they're meant to apply to us in some way as well. And so it would be worth asking who are the powers and authorities that are persecuting the church in our own day? Right? And there aren't just four of them, right? I hope you can think of more. I mean, there, uh, there are all these you know, militant Islamic countries, as well as uh, the few communist countries that have been waging war against the church for many, many decades. And then you have the secular ideologies that directly oppose God, even in countries that are supposed to be free like ours. And so just as it was true in Zechariah's day, we can also see that the oppressive powers that surround God's people, they come from everywhere, even today. I'm sure some of you have heard this statistic, but did you know that more Christians have died for their faith in the last 100 years than in all the other centuries combined. Right? And it's partly because, of course, there are more Christians now than you know there were before. Uh, but this is an amazing statistic, right? That means that these forces in the world are real. Right? These forces that oppose the church are real. And they're still waging war against God. Now, thankfully... The Bible is filled with language of God being directly opposed to such forces. Psalm 75, for instance, says, I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. (laughs) Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck, God says, to these forces that oppose him. In Jeremiah 48, it also says the horn of Moab, right? A country that was directly opposed to God's people back in the day. The horn of Moab is cut off and his arm is broken, declares the Lord. So we can see that God has always been opposed to such forces, right? Powers that assault his name and attack his people. And I'm sure that doesn't surprise any of you. But what may surprise some of you is the means God chooses to oppose such powers, right? What are his means? What are his methods? Which leads us to the question of what do the four craftsmen represent in this vision? Let's think about this together, okay? First of all, who are craftsmen? According to one definition, a craftsman is a skilled worker who makes or creates material objects partly or entirely by hand. So very skilled with the hand. You can think of people who are good at working with, let's say, wood right, or stone or metal or glass. I'm sure you know such people. And they make things that are useful and sometimes very beautiful, actually. For my birthday a few years ago, uh, it was during COVID, I did what I've never done before, okay? I, I blessed myself by going online. I-, I gifted myself, okay? I don't do this normally, okay? I, I sent a gift to myself. <laughs> I went online and I ordered a wooden chess table that was handmade by a skilled craftsman. <laughs> and I tell you, it is Probably one of the best purchases I've made in my life because not only is it functional, but it's also very beautiful, and I'm pretty certain that it'll be passed down from one generation to the next. Uh, Joshua, our youngest, will probably be uh, you know probably end up with it because he's the only one so far who has shown real interest in chess. <laughs> the others are just pretenders. <laughs> but. Hey, that's what skilled craftsmen are able to do, right? They have the skill of fashioning something functional and beautiful out of ordinary material like wood. By the way, I know some of you are out there, you know, play chess. If you ever want to challenge me, right, just let me know. I'll be there just, you know, time and day. But here's the thing. No matter how skilled craftsmen are, they're not the ones you would call when you're trying to win a fight because they're not fighters. And they don't have any political clout either. I mean, they're, they're not of the elite class. They're, they're blue collar through and through. So what power do they actually have in this world? They're, they're typically used as pawns by the cultural elites in any given society, no matter what century it may be. So if the points of the vision is to offer comfort to God's people, wouldn't it make more sense for God to depict a powerful animal with bigger horns (laughs) or perhaps a valiant warrior who is able to slay giant beasts with one blow? Don't you think that would bring more comfort? But there's none of that here going on. Instead, we're introduced to humble and lowly craftsmen. The question is why? I believe it's because God, he loves to use the weak things in the world to shame the strong, 1 Corinthians chapter one. I believe it's because God loves to tell the underdog story that concludes with some version of the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Or how about Esau, the older brother will serve the younger or David, the shepherd boy, and the youngest in the family will be chosen to rule as king. Isn't that what happened to young Joseph as well? Isn't that, isn't that why Joseph's brothers hated him? I mean, the thought of having to bow down to the youngest among them just ate away at their hearts over time. And to be honest, I don't know if my own kids would be able to handle it if they were told that they would have to bow down to Joshua, the six-year-old, one day <laughs> to live under his rule, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's going to be hard to swallow. I actually shared this during nine o'clock service. My family was sitting over there, and, and Sophia, our middle child, she leaned over to her mom and said, we already bowed down to Joshua, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess we spoil him too much, right? And he actually does act like the king already, so I don't know what that's about, but... Um, My point is that the underdog story is the kind of story God loves to tell. It's what the gospel story essentially is as well, right? I mean, it's not a coincidence, brothers and sisters, that Jesus himself was a humble carpenter from lowly Nazareth. Of course, he was God who who came down from heaven's throne, but See, he came to us in the form of a carpenter, a craftsman. And that's why people were so confused by him, right? Mark chapter 6, on the Sabbath day, Jesus, he taught in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? Don't we know him? I mean, is, is not he the, the carpenter, the craftsman? Isn't he the son of Mary and brother of James? And I mean, haven't we grown up with him? We know this guy, Right? He's a humble carpenter. And so they took offense. They took offense. It didn't make them happy. Like, who does he think he is? And remember the powerful people of Jesus' day also sneered at him, saying things like, isn't he from Nazareth? What good can come from Nazareth? (laughs) Look, Jesus was not only a carpenter, but he came from Nazareth, which, which was perceived in those days to be essentially what we would call the hood or the ghetto. But I want you to see how God, he he loves to surprise us with these underdog elements where God uses what is perceived as weak to shame the strong. It's a recurring theme throughout scripture. He uses Jesus, my goodness, a lowly carpenter, a craftsman to slay our greatest enemy, sin, death, Satan, right? Who is depicted as having horns on his head. That is the ultimate underdog story, isn't it? And it is, I believe, the main reason why we all, I hope, we love movies such as Rocky. Do okay. you like Rocky? Okay. I hope you do. Rudy, have you seen Rudy? Great underdog story. Okay, if you haven't watched it, go watch it. A good underdog story. Remember the Titans, another great underdog movie. The Miracle, right? hockey story. I recommend it. Why do we love these stories? Well, it's because all these stories are essentially echoes of the greatest story that was ever told. I think mean, that's why something really resonates in our hearts whenever we watch a great underdog movie. Now, it's clear that God loves to use the weak to shame the strong, but do you know why he loves the underdog story so much? You know the reason behind it? Well, he tells us why. He tells us in places like 1 Corinthians 1, right? God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is low and despised in the world so that, right? He tells us why. Why does he love this story so much? Well, it's so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's to make his power known. It's to make his glory clear to all of us. The power comes from him. Also in Second Corinthians 4, it says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And so he loves to tell these stories because his power and his glory is more clearly seen as it's made to contrast human weakness. And brothers, and sisters, do not just think that this is all done for him only, for his glory and his honor. No, this is done for us as well. It's for us, too, because we need to see that God is powerful and strong. We need to see his glory more clearly, especially in this life with with sin still plaguing us. Because if we didn't make, if if we didn't, if we weren't able to see this contrast on a regular basis, that God is strong and we are not, then see, our sin would easily deceive us. And we would think that all we need to do in this life to get by or to make it to the end is to just have higher self-esteem, to just believe in ourselves a little more, to kind of grow our horns. Maybe our horns are too small. Maybe we have to grow our egos and our horns, right, to really succeed in this life. That's what we will be thinking. I bet some of us would even start thinking of ourselves as gods, as many of the false religions of our day have done, including our secular religions, which presume now that human beings can play God and define our own realities there's no people do these days. That's basically what the sexual and gender revolution is all about. It's about playing God and presuming too much, growing your horns too big. I believe the, uh, the self-esteem movement of the past several decades can basically be called the four horns movement. Right? It's about growing your horns and feeling good about yourself, right? saying how great you are while ignoring God in the process. But see, God uses craftsmen who are weak vessels to defeat great powers. And God calls us jars of clay so that it will be made clear that he is God, right? And we are not. That we can trust in his power and his wisdom and not trust in our own. It's meant to humble us. It's meant to have that reverse effect. So with that, let me offer... Three words of application that I believe would be appropriate responses to this vision of four horns and four craftsmen, okay? Number one, given what I just shared, please, brothers and sisters, in response, place your trust in Jesus, who is the great craftsman who came to defeat our worst enemy, You know, many of us, we're concerned about the oppressive forces that surround the church, right? These powers and authorities are committed to attacking the church. And guess what? You should be concerned. I'm concerned. I'm concerned about what's happening in our world today. But you see, you don't want to make the mistake of using the world's unjust and crude political methods to battle against a spiritual enemy. That's where many make the mistake. And to be clear, I'm not saying that there's no place for politics. Okay, In fact, I'm actually a firm believer that earthly government was part of God's design and that it's another tool in his toolbox in bringing forth his justice. Right? God uses governments and politics. However, as you should all know, that there are such things as just methods and unjust methods and how people engage in politics. And as, as Christians, we need to first take comfort in the fact that Jesus has already won the war. We have to first place our trust in him and what he has accomplished so that we can be free, so we don't have to idolize our political earthly leaders or politics in general. Because once you do that, you you lose your soul in the process and you forget actually who's king and who's lord. So, brothers, allow your faith in Christ to properly shape the way you engage in worldly affairs. Right? That's number one. Place your trust in Jesus. Number two, given the fact that God loves to use the weak to shame the strong, I believe this is a call to really examine our hearts because I'm sure all of you already know this, but most of us, maybe probably all of us actually, uh, you you would be placed under the category of powerful and rich, okay? Uh, Of high social status, well-educated, right? That's essentially all of us. I mean, from the world's perspective, if you want to play statistics, then all of us would be like in the the highest percentile, you see. So that, that ought to kind of cause us to examine our hearts. because We have to be careful that we don't get into the heart habit of looking down upon the poor and the lowly in this world with haughty eyes. Very easy to do that. pastors and theologians have described God's kingdom as an upside-down kingdom because in God's kingdom, contrary to how it is in the world, one's wealth, one's education, uh, one's social status doesn't really guarantee anything. In fact, these things often become a snare for us, causing us to depend more upon our riches than in God, you see. And, you know, I I think this is true— for everyone in all places, but isn't it easy for us to measure people based on their education, degrees, based on their social status? You know, are we guilty of all doing this, right? You went to school where? Innocent question, okay? Not a bad question to ask, okay, if you're trying to like strike a conversation. So where did you go to school? And then they give you an answer, right? Are we guilty of, at least once in your life, saying, oh, you went to that school? Okay, I went to a better school, right? Um, and that means that my conclusion is, uh, I am not going to follow your lead, but you should follow my lead because I'm better educated than you, right? We kind of uh, maybe unintentionally make that conclusion in our, in our minds, right? I'm better than you. I'm more superior. I'm smarter than you, essentially. Uh, and I think that's why the Bible says, remember the poor, <clears throat> um, why would the Bible say that, right? Well, it's because it's not natural for us to to do so. We we tend to forget people who are lesser than us because we like to move on, right, toward better things and toward people who would actually help us become more influential in the world, right? And so we leave behind the lesser folks in our minds. But the Bible says, "Remember the poor," by saying, "Remember the those who are lesser." in your minds right. haven't you been told all throughout your lives right to stay away from poor neighborhoods because they're dangerous right i i hear that a lot <laughs> no matter what you're doing like whether it's like t- trying to like choose a i guess a a school or a place to live you know uh, real estate it matters you know like your your i guess your your home value is going to it's going to be affected depending on where you live, and so you know, it's kind of everyone factors it in. You know, what what kind of neighborhood is it? We're told all the time. You know, actually, Joyce and I, our first house uh, was in a pretty rundown neighborhood in, uh, in a town called Norristown, Pennsylvania, and uh, we didn't know. We were like really innocent. Uh, maybe stupid. Okay, maybe it's a blessing to be stupid sometimes. You know kind of just buy, buy a cheap house in a, in a crooked neighborhood. And uh, we were a little surprised that some of the church members, they didn't want to come over <laughs> because in their minds, the neighborhood was too shady. And I didn't quite understand it initially, but then I, I looked, I, I, took a, I took a step back and said, okay, I, I get it. I get it, All right? Uh, but the thing is this. If we operated out of those worldly values, we wouldn't ever bother to spend time with the poor because it would never really benefit us, don't you think? We would always want to spend time with, again, those who are more influential in this world. And so, oh, what is that? It's one of the reasons why I believe It would be very good practice for us to maintain ties with places like Colville, okay? doesn't have to be Colville, but I'm saying places like Colville, or the Heritage Home in Indonesia, or the Lamb Center, like a homeless community, right? I I hope they appreciate our help, you know? uh, I hope they appreciate us and what we contribute, but see, just as much as they receive from us, I bet anyone who visited those places uh, will say that we have received just as much, if not more, from our visits because our souls have been benefited, right? Because it gives us a godlier perspective as we engage with those who are lesser than us. And I'm not saying we should just, you know, construct our short-term missions just based on that factor, but It should be a factor, right? Uh, Thirdly, lastly, I believe this vision of the four horns and four craftsmen is also calling us to love the church more, okay? Where do I get that? How do I get to that conclusion? Well, let me explain my reason for why, why I believe that, okay? It's partly because in the Old Testament, the craftsmen were the ones whom God called to build his house. Let me give you an example or two. Exodus 35. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, right? the tent, its coverings, the hooks, its frames, the bars, the pillars, its bases. Right? <laughs> Who did God call to build his house in the Old Testament? It was the craftsmen. They had a big hand in it. And then later on in the same chapter, Moses said to the people, see, the Lord has called by name Bezalel. I mean, the, a craftsman's name is included in the Old Testament here. Bezalel is called. And it says, he has filled him with the spirit of God with skill and intelligence and knowledge with all craftsmanship. And he also serves as a mentor to Aholiab, right? like an intern. And, and, and both of them, along with, Several others are called to, to help build, construct the tabernacle, the house of the Lord. And so think about what the vision is actually showing, right? I mean, four craftsmen are the ones who crush the four horns. But you ask, what, what kind of work are the craftsmen doing? Well, what are they called to do? Well, they're, they're committed to building God's house. And so this will kind of give you an idea of how my mind works, Okay. The conclusion is, and I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say this, maybe you think it's a stretch, but I think it fits in the narrative that perhaps God is saying that it's by building God's house, like the craftsmen in the Old Testament, where the forces of evil are pushed back and defeated. And what is God's house? It is the church. It is God's people. Um, To strengthen my argument even more, Jesus, as I said, he was the ultimate craftsman who gave up his own life. But why did he do that? Well, it was so that the church could be built up and be forever established. So is that too much of a stretch? Isn't this vision mean to show us that the best way to fight against the oppressive forces of evil in this world and the unjust forces is to love and serve the church just like the craftsmen of the Old Testament? Is that too much of a stretch? I don't think so. Let me share an email that was exchanged between me and a friend, another pastor friend. If you think I'm blunt, right, I am nothing compared to this guy. Right? He is like probably 10 times more blunt than I am, but also very smart. <clears throat> uh, this is what he wrote, and this is in response to people who love to say, I'm really into God, but I just don't like institutional religion, right? In other words, I don't like being part of a church because I, I'm going to do my own kind of spirituality thing, okay? And this is what he, he wrote. I, I get that many people have been hurt by some kind of bad behavior by leaders in a church. I, I get that millions of people are victims of the mainline churches that aren't really churches. I I do genuinely have compassion on these folks. However, there is a tough part of the Bible that we need to remember here. Why are so many purposeless and narcissistic people dying from their lawless emptiness? He's referring to all the chaos and suffering that happens in the world because people are just kind of like unhinged. Because he says, you reap... What you sow, let me say this bluntly, it's because they earn their death. Sin begets death. The wages of sin is death. Wages are things you earn. A whole generation and nation cannot go around slandering God's bride by his church and his very vehicle of mercy and not incur some very bad consequences. We need a shift in the spirit, in the zeitgeist of our times and culture. We need to get to a movement when people who go around dumping on the church should be called out as foolish and as contributing to the deaths of suffer- and sufferings of our neighbors. Millions of young people need to have a different attitude to the most important institution in the world. Do you believe that the church is the most important institution in the world? When we live live in a culture where there is no fear of God and no sense that they need him through his church, it's going to be a land of deep folly, and folly kills. Among Christians, maybe we need to get back to sacrificing for the church and being devoted to the church. The church is a very temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a beacon of light and life in a dying world. Very different vision of the church, right? I find that very refreshing. I'm not saying that we should idolize church leaders and never be critical of them. Any church and its leadership should be held accountable, of course, but I want to conclude the message by asking you to see the church as Jesus sees the church. Is it a flawed group of sinners? Of course it is. But did Jesus give up his life for her And has he committed to loving her as his own body? Yes, he has. And if he has been willing to do that, so should we. Wouldn't you agree? So, brother, sister, let's commit to loving and serving the church together. Let's pray together. Dear Father, We thank you for the upside down nature of your kingdom. We've been reminded this morning that you love to use the weak to bring down the mighty. You love to use the humble to confound the proud, just as you have ultimately done through the suffering and death of your own son. As we depart from this place, may we carry this truth in our hearts, ready and willing to be vessels of your transformative power as we ourselves bear the name of Christ. Just as a craftsman work with humble tools, may we be willing to to be instruments in your hands to shape the world with your message of grace and truth as the church, as your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.